All right, if you'll take your Bibles, please, open them to the book of Hebrews and the sixth chapter. We return again to this passage that uh, we'll be in for a while. Hebrews chapter 6, and if you would join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning again at verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth that drinks in the rain and often bears, it often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you give to us grace in this day to understand and to glory in your beauty. Father, we pray that you would help us see the the goodness that has been lavished upon us, the things that have been poured into us, God, that would cause us to turn unto you. We thank you for the work that you do, and we ask God that you would give us grace to recognize that as you do that work upon us, that you call us to respond to your glory, Father. You call us to respond to your truth. You call us to respond to the grace that has been given. And I pray, God, that you would help all of us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. So the working of God in the lives of everybody is a work of grace. We absolutely do not deserve the goodness of God. We absolutely do not deserve the grace that has been given to us. But God still gives to us grace, and wondrously, He rewards those that He has given grace unto. So He gives us grace, He gives us the ability to turn unto Him, and then He rewards us for it as if we had actually done something. The example given is that he smiles on those who bear fruit, who receive the rain of heaven, although any ability to do that comes from God. Nonetheless, that blessing of God is on those who receive his word and bear fruit. Now, God shows much patience towards those who have received his word. He labors over them and he delights in them. He blesses them with increase and with the pleasure of his own countenance. But there are also those who receive the word in some measure and merely sip at it. They give it room in their minds and hearts. They receive the word with a temporary joy, but without good and honest hearts. These are those who only bear thorns and thistles. These are the ones who are outside, who do not know the grace of his favor, who have been given the same common grace and have borne only sin. God gives special attention to those that are his own choice, to those that he has made his own inheritance. And in the field of his labor, this glory falls on the elect and on the elect, unelect side by side. We are called to take in the rain. We are called to bear fruit according to the labor of the Lord in us. We are God's field, created for by God's, cared for by God's labor and called to produce the fruit that God gives to us. Turn to Matthew chapter 13, just as a perspective on this idea. Matthew chapter 13, and starting at verse 24. Matthew 
Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. When the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barns. So I want to think with you this morning about how God works in the field of his pleasure and how in that work he pours out grace both on good field, good seed, good ground, and on bad seed and bad ground. That the pleasure of God is to pour out this common grace as we talked about last week But there's more than just the distribution of common grace. There is the active work of God to cultivate and to care for this this field, which is our lives. And, And in that, there is a higher level of responsibility to bear fruit and to walk in the grace that has been given to us in Christ. So, first of all, we need to understand that the yield of the field belongs to God. It's His work. It's His glory to cause us to be drawn to Him. It's His glory to cause us to know Him. It's His glory that opens our eyes. It's His glory that gives to us life. It's His pleasure to make a people for His own use and for His own joy. And when He pours out Himself over the field and in the people's lives, there are two possible options of what is produced. The first is good fruit. Useful things that are the intention of the one who plants them. Useful, beautiful according to the proper season and the proper design. If you go out into your field and you plant one crop, I expect that you intend that one crop to be what grows. Amen? Amen. Uh, You you don't go out and plant wheat and expect henbit. You, You would prefer not to have the weeds coming up in the midst of your wheat field. Generally, men do things about that. They deal with those things in some fashion. So you can either have the fruit that you intend, you can have the crop that you intend, or sometimes thorns, thistles, briars, things that are destructive and which are an impediment to the one who plants them. Nobody likes cleaning bindweed out of their combine, do they? It sort of slows you down. It creates a problem for your life. And in the end, if we're going to understand what's going on here, we need to recognize that when good fruit is born in our lives, God is pleased and honored. And when bad fruit is produced in our lives, God is not. This is really simple, and yet there are many who want to make of it something very complex. They want to make of it something difficult, whereby they try to create a room wherein Christians can have sin in their lives and still be Christians, can have abiding sin, constant sin, no effort to escape it, no effort to walk in grace. The the Christians say, well, I love Christ, but I also love this thing that Jesus tells me not to do, but I'm okay with it, so he should be too. 
And you hear that kind of talk from people who will name the name of Christ. And what the scripture is telling us is that when people live in that way, there is an absence of good fruit in their lives and the presence of bad fruit, and it tells us something about them. It tells us something about the condition of their soul. Now, there are two possible categories by which this fruit is used. Good fruit is used for good things. You harvest your crop, you partake of the good things that you have planted. Do you get much use out of the weeds and the briars and the tares and the thistles and the waste ground? No. Most of it's not even good for firewood. It just needs to be burned up and destroyed because it has no value in it. In the end, this is the same thing that the writer of Hebrews gives us about the condition of these lives. And it's a warning to us. It's something that we need to be mindful of, that God says, I expect my people to bear fruit. And if you are my people, you will bear fruit because I am a good farmer. I am a good vine dresser. I am a good husbandman, to use the old word. I am somebody who knows what he's doing when I try to produce something. And I promise you, I will produce what I aim to produce. So in the end, if we're looking at our lives and we're saying to ourselves, you know, I really don't have any fruit of righteousness in me, that should not be something that we're okay with. It should not be something that we're very complacent about if we can examine our lives and see nothing of Christ in us. That should worry us. Now, there's something really interesting that the English doesn't give us very well, because in this same idea, there's also two distinct ideas about how they are produced. Now, if you read, again, chapter 6 and verse um, 7 and 8, it tells us that if it bears herbs, then it's useful, but if it bears thorns and briars, it's rejected. Now, in English, that word bears is the same word, but in the Greek, it's not. In the first one, it's the idea of bearing fruit. It's tiktusa, and the same word is used for bearing a child. It's something that is desirable, it's beautiful, it's useful, it's proper, it's something that has been longed for and looked forward to. Amen, Hannah? We're looking forward to meeting that baby. This is the idea. The element of the intention of the one who planted the seed. He has cultured the intended fruit, and he is very pleased with the result. This is what's being told to us about if your life bears fruit, catch that drift. This is the idea that God has poured into you everything that is needful that your life would bear fruit. He's anxiously looking forward to the time when your life would bear the fruit that he planted in you. And when it begins to show up, he is pleased at it. He delights in the fruit of his labor in the lives of his children. He delights in the goodness that he sees being formed in you. But this other word, when it says, if it bears thorn, it's a completely different word in the Greek. It's ekferusa, and it is to carry the dead for burial. So if you're burying somebody out of, out of the city to go, bear them, that's, to go bury them, that's the word that's used here. It's an idea that's, that's talking about a burden to carry out, to carry forth, to bring forth. It indicates that that which is carried out is monstrous, it is harmful, it is wrong, It is useless or it is dead. It's also implied that it's contrary to the intended work and and husbandry of the one who planted it. In other words, God is not pleased with a crop of unrighteousness. He is not pleased with the one who bears no labor, and his anger will ultimately be aroused for the waste of his time, his resources, and his labor. 
There's a component in this in which we look at the work of God in the field and our responsibility as that field to bear the fruit that he intends us to bear. We bear a responsibility. We have that interaction with God. He is working on creating righteousness in his children. And he calls us to be active participants with him in that labor because his interest is invested in it. God is not passive in this process. He's not passive in producing righteousness in his children. He is actively laboring to work out his will in his children. He smiles on the fruitful earth. He has blessed it with its fruit. He's not ashamed of calling it his own. He cares for it. He watches over that which he has named as his own. And he preserves it from the final evil. And this ground is the ground of the true believer. Matthew 13, verse 23 says, He who received the seed on the good crop is he who hears the word and understands it. He who indeed bears fruit and produces, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. That's the parable of the soils, wherein Jesus talked about the man who went out and he sowed his seed, and some of it fell on rocky ground, and some of it fell on the pathway, and some of it was choked out by weeds. Some of it fell on good ground and bore a good crop. Now, of those three, or of those four kinds of soils, three of them are not believers. One quarter is all that Jesus says. This is the one who bears fruit. And I want you to notice very clearly what Jesus just said here. Some bear a hundredfold, some bear sixty, some bear thirty, but all of them are blessed. Okay? It's not about, oh, he bore more fruit than I did, so God loves him more. No. God is the one who determines what the increase is for each of us. But understand this. If God is causing you to bear fruit, he's pleased. If God has worked out your life so that your life is bearing fruit according to his grace, he's pleased. But he doesn't compare you to another Christian who might be bearing more visible fruit. That's not his game. What he says is, is those who are mine will bear fruit that I intend to plant in them. And those who are not, will not. Even though some of them, particularly the one who sprang up in the thin soil and the one who sprang up in the weeds... Some of them, for a season, looked like they were believers. Those are exactly the people that the writer of Hebrews is talking about. Jared and I spoke about this just briefly yesterday following Bible study, and we've talked about apostate, but I want to make sure this point is very clear. A person who is not a part of the church cannot be apostate. An apostate is somebody who claimed Christ and then says, you know what, I don't believe any of that. So what they're confessing is that the things that they confessed are not true, never were. An apostate is somebody who owned the name of Christ, who belonged among us, who we thought was real, who then later turns away and and is gone forever. That's an apostate. An unbeliever may hate God, may declare that he hates God with all that he is, and, and may lash out against righteousness with everything that he has in him. And he is just an unbeliever. He is just a dead person doing dead things. He is not apostate. But there is a line of distinction that the Scripture gives us wherein those who named the name of Christ, who claimed to belong to Him, and then later turn away, those are to be set aside. They belong unto God. And God is free to do whatever He wants to do. God can change their hearts if He pleases to do so. 
But when somebody has drawn that clear line of distinction in the sand and the church has exercised discipline against them and said, you know what, we're done, then we have an obligation to not go chasing after them. We have an obligation to let that stand and leave them in the hands of God. Paul talks about that. He says, I've turned this man over to Satan that he might learn not to blaspheme. This is serious stuff, and this is hard stuff. But it doesn't apply to somebody who never owned Christ. Okay? What we're talking about, and what the writer of Hebrews is talking about here in the church, is those who were a part of the church, who claimed to believe in Christ, who said, I'm his and he's mine, and then later say, I don't want any part of this. It's all a lie. Those people are exactly who the writer of Hebrews is talking about. Now, it's also important that we understand before we move on that these are people who never actually were born again. Their faith was never real. It was all in the head. It was all in their imagination. They decided to do something. And when you decide, you can undecide. It was all about the fact that there is nothing in them that is true. So what God seeks to do is to produce the fruit in our lives that he has planted. And so what happens in us when God causes a true believer to bear fruit, like Jesus talked about in Matthew 13, is that the fruit that God plants is going to be brought forth. We will display what, plant, what was planted in our heart. The fruit is a direct result of the planting and the labor that has gone into it. Our lives are changed to reflect the nature of the work of the Spirit of God in us. So as God is laboring in you, He will not be thwarted in His attempt, in His intention to produce fruit in the life of His children. Take comfort from that. Because sometimes we can look at our lives and we can look at the things that we're doing and we can look at the things that we're wrestling with and we can say, God, it feels like I will never gain any ground on this. It feels like everything in my life is a wreck and everything in my life is a ruin and there is no fruit whatsoever and I I just don't even know what I'm doing anymore. And we need to understand that God will always succeed in the lives of his children to produce fruit. Part of our dilemma is that we tend for all of our lives to fight the same fights. There are sins that own you in, in, a, in a very real sense. And those sins will always have a prevalent place in your fight against the flesh. And as you gain ascendancy over them, and as you have victory after victory after victory, you're going to keep fighting against the same enemies. You're just going to fight them at a deeper level. You're going to fight them from a new perspective. In my mind, I liken it to climbing one of those medieval towers that goes up and up and up, that has windows always on the same side. And so you'll look out at the four cardinal directions of the compass, and every time you look out, you're looking at the same ground, but you're looking at it from a new perspective as you go up a floor and up a floor and up a floor. The same is true of our sin. You're going to fight the same fights. We're all made up in in a unique way. And there are things that you struggle with that I may not, and there are things that I struggle with that you may not. And so we're always fighting against the same demons, if you will. But we're fighting against them from a new perspective. And it's hard for us to remember that sometimes. We we come around to the same fight and we feel like, man, I fought this fight before and I'm losing. God, am I even yours? It's a good time for us to step back and take a real perspective of our lives. And understand that God has produced fruit. That God is changing us. And that God is manifesting Christ. And that we are growing up. Yes, we're still fighting against the same basic sins. 
but we're fighting against them with more strength, and we're fighting against them at a new level, and we're fighting against them having victories under our belt. And it's good for us to remember this, because you are going to have to fight all the days of your life. There is never a day when you will be given permission to say, you know what, I don't have to fight against the flesh anymore until it is the last day and you are in the presence of God. In that day, you won't have to. But until then, you will. And it's good to have your head on straight about this because if you don't, you will become weakened in your mind and you will become a casualty. So those who belong to God will bring forth the fruit of righteousness. Those who do not will bring forth the weeds that have been in them. Do you ever notice you don't have to plant weeds? I wonder about that sometimes. I go out and I till the garden and I get it ready and it's all good and then it rains for three weeks and I can't get anything in the ground and then I go out and I look at it and I say, where did all these weeds come from? I didn't plant a one of them. And I have to do it all over again because you don't plant weeds. It's weird. Where do the weeds come from? Well, they come from seeds that are already in the ground. Sometimes those seeds lay dormant for a long time until the conditions are just right. So here's what you need to know. Until I plant in my garden, I should not expect my garden to bear good fruit. If I leave it alone, it'll run wild, and it'll bear all the weeds that are already there. When God plants in your life, you will bear good fruit. And when God doesn't plant in somebody's life, what are they going to produce? Weeds. They're going to produce the fruit of what's already in them. They're going to produce the fruit of their own flesh and their own sin and their own depravity, which is human nature. And so what happens is God plants something new in us and we bear fruit according to righteousness. When God passes over somebody, they're going to receive the same rain. They're going to receive the same watering. They're going to receive the same cultivation in a very real sense. But that ground that hasn't been planted is going to bear nothing but weeds. And we'll see those things growing up side by side. In the end, what grows is the intended result. The fruit of our lives will be what God has placed in us and what he delights in. And as, he, as we produce fruit, it becomes God's joy to display his person in us. There, there's, if you go through and look at the scripture, there's a lot of places where it talks about the fruit of righteousness or the fruit of holiness or the fruit of the spirit. This is what God produces in his children. And so often we look at our lives and we say, but I haven't made any big change in the world around me. It's the completely wrong perspective. That's not what God's producing in you. He might do that through you, but he might not. What he's producing in you is the character and the nature and the person of his son, Jesus. Remember, God is always more concerned about what he is doing in you than what he will do through you. Which means that as far as our, our productivity and how God delights in what we produce, the ground is level for all of his children. You don't have to change the world in order to delight God and magnify his glory. 
You just have to become like Christ. Your heart is being changed. And the character and the fruit and the person of Christ is being manifested in you, which means that no matter how small you feel like your life is, God delights in it. And this is what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 3 when he speaks about how God is, is displaying in us to the powers and the principalities in the heavenly places the perfection of his plan. We look at it from completely the wrong perspective. We look at it and say, well, I'm, I'm not doing anything big and huge, and therefore God can't be delighting in me. That's just completely untrue. God delights in his children because the fruit of righteousness is being produced in you. The fruit of the Spirit has been planted in you if you belong to Christ. The fruit of holiness is the evidence of Christ being found in you. And in the end, it is useful for the one who cultivates it. So when a man plants a field, he plants the field that he plants because it's going to be useful for him. It's going to be something that he needs or something that he can trade or something that he can use. And God plants in his children that which he expects to harvest in his children because it is what he desires to have. It's useful for his purposes. God himself is the great vine dresser. John 15.1 says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. If he's the vine dresser, who's the field? Well, that would be you. All believers are God's field. 1 Corinthians 3.9 says, We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. And if you are his field and he is the vine dresser, he is also the master of the field. He is the sovereign over everything that belongs to him. Matthew 21.33, here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. He leased it to vine dressers and went out into a far country. So what's he talking about? He's talking about this idea that God's people are this field and he in that parable, and we could go on with the rest of the parable, but it's not really applicable to this sermon. He in that in that parable, is the owner of the field. It's his investment. It's his time. It's his work to create in his, in his people what he wants to receive from it. He calls his people his portion. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy 32, starting at verse 7. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High, <clears throat> excuse me, when the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. Now this idea really struck me this week as I was thinking about this sermon and preparing this. It's this idea that God looked over and he, he chose out a people and he said to himself, this part is mine. I'm, I'm going to delight in them. This is my portion that I have reserved for myself. I could have chosen any portion. I could have taken any of it. It all belongs to me. But this part this people, this is my special delight. I've given my love over them. 
because I chose them. This is the people that I have called out. This is the people that I have selected for my own glory. I don't know about you, but when I think about that, it fills me with wonder that God would have looked at me and said, I'm going to delight in that one. I know me better than that. I I know what I am. But God still says, I'm going to put my love on him, and I'm going to delight in him, and I'm going to manifest my son's character in him, and I will produce the fruit of righteousness in this one who is my delight. Beloved, if you belong to Christ, he says the same thing about you. You are his inheritance. You are the portion he has chosen for his own share. And there's wonder in that. There is joy in that. There is purpose in that. Because he speaks as though he has temporarily given over ownership of everything else into the hand of others. He's reserved for himself this portion that will become what he wants us to be over the course of our lives and over the course of history. The rest he has set aside. The rest he has turned away from. But to us, beloved, to us, he has made his delight in his people. And we have become the very labor of God. God himself is the one who takes care of us. We just read in Matthew 21, 33, Jesus saying this parable. Do you know that Jesus was actually quoting from Isaiah chapter 5? In Isaiah chapter 5, God speaking to Israel basically says this exact thing. And then he says, And I came and I looked for grapes, but instead I found wild grapes. I found useless fruit. When you read the book of Isaiah, God's pretty unhappy with Israel at that point in their history. But he himself invested his time, invested his labor, invested his love, invested his resources in preparing for himself this vineyard that would produce his righteousness. And he's, he's continuing to do that even today. He is giving us the Word. He's giving us the Spirit. He's giving us every other means of light, of grace, of growth, of, of truth. It all comes from God, and we are all utterly dependent upon Him to have what we need to bear fruit. But here's the good news. If God's the one who's cultivating us, if God is the one who is giving us what is needful, then we can know without question that we will have what we need. Amen? You look at your life and you say to yourself, well, I could be a better person if only plug in whatever you want it to be. If only my job was easier. If only my children would listen to me. If only my marriage was better. If only my my pay was more. If only I had that opportunity. If only I had this. If only we had a better preacher. If only something was different in our lives, my life would be better. You understand that all of those things that we tell ourselves, they're a lie from the pit of hell. Because God has given to you everything needful for life and righteousness and obedience unto him. And sometimes the very things that we look at and say, God, if that were not in my life, I would be so much better. Those are the special things that God has particularly designed to cause you to grow in grace. You understand that the challenges in your life are there as a mercy to bring pressure to bear on the parts that need to be excised, to help you grow 
to teach you what it is to rely on God, to walk in truth. So often we're, we're guilty of lazy thinking. We're guilty of thinking that if life was easy, it would be better. It's just not true. When you're not challenged, you don't produce strength. When, when you cave under the pressure of life that's going on around you, it displays an inherent weakness. So God brings pressure to bear to strengthen that part that needs it. Because in the end, he is determined that his children will bear healthy fruit. He's determined that we will be able to do the things that he's put into our lives to do. And he will bring whatever is needful to cause us to grow in that grace. Because God is the one who is providing every single thing that you need. He tills the earth. He cultivates it. He cares for it. So he gives to us the public preaching of the word. He gives to us the private intake of the word. He gives to us the discipline of the church. And he gives to us trials, afflictions, and difficulties. And by those, he prunes us. Remember what Jesus said? He said that every single vine that bears fruit, my Father will what? Will prune. So that it produces what? More fruit. So when you're you're producing fruit, you can expect God to come to work in your life and go to work with the shears to prune things back, to cut away the excess, to cause your life to be more clearly focused on Him so that you produce more fruit. You bring Him more glory. And all of these things God brings to bear in our lives. 1 Peter 1.7 says that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 3. Listen to how Paul describes the trials that afflict us. He says, not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. Tribulation, perseverance, character, hope. Love of Christ. That comes out of what? What was the first link in that chain? Tribulation. Difficulties. Trials. Things that we would say, God, I really don't want that. God says, yeah, I'm sorry. I really intend you to have it. Look at Hebrews chapter, I'm sorry, James chapter 1. Right after Hebrews. James chapter 1, look at verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Let that man not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is double-minded, unstable in all his ways. 
So God has expectations from the field. He has expectations from what he puts into his children. Okay? God is determined that you would produce fruit. He is determined that you would grow in grace. And when he invests himself in you, he expects fruit out of you. So this whole idea that that is so popular in the church today, whereby people say, well, I can believe in Jesus, and I can know that I'm saved, but I don't have to submit to Him as Lord, therefore I can live my life however I want to live it, and I'm still going to go to heaven, I'll just be a little further away from the throne. That whole idea is pure hogwash. That whole idea is garbage. Because where God says, I have made you mine, The expectation is that you bear fruit according to righteousness. It is not an expectation of perfection. Please do not mishear me. But it is an expectation of fruit. And when God invests himself in changing a life, he expects that life to grow. Now here's the perspective. We've been talking about my garden. Weeds in my garden I don't appreciate. I go out with a hoe, I chop them up, or I pull them up, and I try to make sure that there's nothing green in my garden that I did not plant. I fail at that sometimes, but that's the effort. But you know what's weird about that? Just outside the garden fence, I don't care if there's weeds. Right? But where my time and my energy and my water bill are invested... (laughs) I care about the weeds. I want them out. I don't want them stealing the precious nutrients from the plants that I want. I want them gone. I'm not okay with weeds in the ground that I'm cultivating. Understand this. Where God invests himself in a people, he intends that we would bear fruit according to righteousness. And weeds are unwelcome and they are not accepted. Isaiah 5.2, he says that he looked for grapes. He says, I dug up, I cleared out its stones, I planted it with the choicest vine, I built a tower in its midst, I made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And when God intends that we would bear fruit, he also intends that he would harvest the fruit that we produce. Okay? Now think about this. God's producing the character of Christ in you. He's producing righteousness according to his own design in your character and in your nature. Is that just for you? Is it just so that you can go, hey, look at me, I'm a good guy? No. Why is he producing the righteousness of Christ in you? For his own glory, for his own use, for his own pleasure. He's going to use you when He produces Christ in you. He's going to harvest the fruit that He is growing in you. Matthew 21, 34 says, Now when vintage time drew near, He sent His servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. Now He doesn't need our fruit, and He doesn't need our goodness, but it is the design of His labor. And He desires what is His own. He has a right to say, I put myself into growing Christ in you and I expect to see it. 
He desires that that which is his own would come back unto him, that he would receive that which he put himself into. John 15, 8 says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. When this is our lives, we will experience the blessing of God. We will experience His joy being poured out over us. We will experience His righteousness being displayed to us in new ways. For God approves of the fruit that is brought forth, and He blesses those who bring it forth. Now, I want you to pay attention to the fact that this is God's blessing on you. When Christ is being manifested in you, when Christ is being made in you and being formed in you, and God says, I will set my love upon this one and I will lavish my grace over them, this is the promise of God to bless you with himself. Don't cheapen this by making it into some promise of health and wealth and all the good things the world promises. This is God's promise to give you more of him. This is God's promise to manifest His glory to you. And this blessing may not necessarily be seen by men. So the work of a mother quietly raising her son in the fear of the Lord is just as blessed of God as the pastor of the biggest church that's being faithful who sends out missionaries all over the world and plants churches in every corner of the globe. But we don't think about it in those terms. We tend to look at the Bible and go, that's the guy. He's moving the world for the sake of the kingdom. But you know what? That mother who's raising her boy to love the Lord, who knows what that will produce later? What we do know is this. God says that is the same in his sight because he doesn't need either one of them to accomplish his good. He doesn't need the preacher. I promise you that. He doesn't need us in any way. He delights in us growing in grace. And He delights in manifesting Christ in us. Which brings the focus into what goes on in your heart and how do you live Christ out in the most intimate relationships of your life. Now the sad truth is, there are times where we blow this spectacularly. The sad truth is there are times where we take those relationships and we abuse them with our selfishness and we abuse them with our flesh. That's not honoring to God. But it doesn't mean that He's cast you off. It just means there's still work to be done. It just means that there is still grace to be lived out and grace to be manifested. It's also important that we understand that the plant does not receive praise for what it produces. Okay? The plant does not receive praise for what it produces. The gardener does. When the garden looks good, somebody comes up and says, oh my goodness, your garden looks so lovely. You don't walk out into the garden and go, oh, you little tomato plant, you're so beautiful. Well, some people talk to their plants that way, but... That's not the thing. The plant doesn't get the praise. The one who did the work gets the praise. The plant just acts according to its nature and according to the way that it's been tended. And in the end, God is the one who deserves the praise for the fruit that's in your life. God is the one who gets the glory for what He does in you. 
God's. It's all His. Every single bit of this belongs to Him. And in that, we should delight. Because not only does it take the pressure off us, but it gives us something with which to praise our Father. Because as you see Christ being formed in you, you can delight in it without pride and arrogance and being puffed up. And you can say, God, I am so amazed that there is anything in me but the filth that I knew. I am so amazed at what you have done in me, and I praise you for it, Father. Thank you for showing Jesus. And the good news is, is that you can do that even with the smallest gains. You can do that in just the tiniest little evidence of fruit. Because you can know that if there is any good thing in you, it's not of you. It's Him. It's His glory. It's His grace. It's His work. It's Him who planted it. Him who watered it. Him who cultivated it. Him who has brought to bear the the pruning shears to cut away the excess. It is Him who has done all of the labor to produce in you even the smallest scrap of the character of Christ. And the blessing that comes from it is threefold. First of all, He accepts us and our offerings. Genesis 4.4, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering. Now I've heard people sometimes go, well that doesn't fair because God didn't tell them. Well clearly God did. Because later in that chapter he tells Cain, if you do what's right, will you not be accepted? The scripture doesn't tell us when God told them, but clearly God told them. Clearly they knew what they were supposed to bring. And somebody will say, well, Abel was the one who had the sheep. Cain was a farmer. All he had was grain. Well, you know what? There's this thing called commerce. All he had to do was bring to his brother the basket of grain and go, I'll trade you some bread makings for a lamb. We both have to offer a sacrifice to God. And that sacrifice would have been acceptable. Because God had told them very plainly that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sin. Period. Understand this, beloved. Whatever it is that you bring to the Lord, if it is according to what God has commanded you to do, He will accept you. He will accept it. But you cannot bring to God that which He has told you not to do and expect Him to be pleased with it. You cannot bring to God that which He has forbidden and expect Him to be okay because it's all you have. Fight for righteousness. Fight for truth. Fight for obedience. Fight for every inch of your ground so that you will have something to bring. So that you will have something with which to worship your God. Do not pretend for one moment that this doesn't matter. Because it matters more than you can understand. And as you do this, He will also increase your faithfulness. I I spoke about it before, but John 15.2 says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear what? More fruit. 2 Corinthians 9.10 says, Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. So God's intention 
is to bless you and to increase your production and increase the fruit in your life. And the best issue of his blessing on us as we manifest Christ is the fact that Jesus has promised, I'm going unto my Father, and I am going to prepare a place for you. Do you ever pause to consider the fact that Jesus, who has fulfilled his work on the earth, is still at work making a place for you? Amen. What a wonder that is. What a wonder it is that he delights in his children so much that he himself has undertaken to make a place for us to be with him. What a wondrous blessing it is. And beloved, in the midst of all of this, I just want to remind you that it is God's work to produce the character of Christ in you. And if you belong to him, he has undertaken that task and he will bring it to completion. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace in this day, and I pray, Lord, that you would help us recognize our responsibility to labor with you in the righteousness that you're producing. But help us also to recognize that apart from you, we can do nothing. Help us, God, to recognize that there is no way in the world that we can produce a shred of righteousness without your blessing, without your labor, without your hand being upon us for the sake of that righteousness. And I thank you, God, that even the smallest shred of fruit you praise and delight yourself in. God, it is glory, it is mercy, it is grace. It's everything that we expect from you because you are good, you are perfect, you are gracious, and we love you. We thank you for Jesus, who is the source of all of this unto us. For it's in his name and by his blood we pray. Amen.